you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. If you've been with us at all over the last handful of weeks, or you've heard us talk about this, we're, we're just making our way through what we're calling Jesus Stories. Right, So any of the stories that involve Jesus that, that try to help us pay attention to, to know him more and learn to practice his ways together. That's what we're up to. And so today's passage is no different. It's from John 4, and it tells the story of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. The overlapping of the stories in this passage, I think, are most profound. You might be familiar with this story, um, but you might not be familiar with the way we move through it. And so I want to elevate this concept of stories first, right? I think it'd be safe to say that all of us are a collection of stories. Like if we spent any time with one another for, you know, an hour, we would, we would just get a tiny glimpse of the stories that make up our lives. Stories of success or shame, life, death, the good, the bad, the mundane, like all of these. And when we come into a place like this and we share a space with one another, there's this collection of stories that is surfacing constantly in here. I think that's wild to think about. But there's something about the way these stories of our lives tend to, to hold us in place a little bit until something happens in the way in which they collide with the person of Jesus. Something different goes on when our stories start to meet Jesus and begin intersecting with him. When we realize that we belong to Jesus, and really we always have, right? We enter into this mysterious space of becoming, as Paul says, a new person. I don't think there's any way to encounter the person of Jesus and not be set on a path in which you become some form of new person. And so it's in a place of intimacy with Jesus, our stories and his stories intertwining, that we get created to live a certain kind of life that starts to illuminate in some way. And that's what I want us to pay attention to today. But before then, let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, again, you are here among us. You meet us in the midst of singing in silence, thanking you for the ministry of somebody who helped start this community. You meet us in the moments we walk through the door and something stirs in us that says, God, you are here. You have something for me, for us as a community. What could it be? Help us hear that today. Just as we sang, give us eyes to see it, ears to hear it, hearts and minds to know it. God, speak to us today and give me your words to speak to, Lord. Pray that I wouldn't say anything that's not for you or from you, that we would make much of you, that we would come to love you and know you more because of our time here today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I'm not going to theorize about stories anymore. We're going to hop in to the text here, right? Because it's a long text. The story of the woman on the well is about 42 verses long, and I promise not to read all the verses, okay? Um, but here's what you do need to know about this encounter that Jesus has with the woman at the well in preparation for all of this. This is the longest recorded conversation with Jesus in the Gospels. Isn't that crazy? This, this woman, a Samaritan woman at the well, is the longest recorded conversation. And outside of Jesus, the main character is a woman from Samaria. And a Jewish rabbi conferring with a Samaritan woman would be like one of the ultimate taboo conversations. 
But we'll get to that. I just want us to know the whole encounter is incredibly unprecedented. And we'll figure out why. Like all good stories, let's start at the beginning. John 4, verse 1. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. Verse 4. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Now, this is a pivotal piece in the story. We didn't make it very far. I know that. right? We're like four verses in. But, but here, this is why we need to know this. Because apparently Jesus had to go through Samaria, but in terms of geography, Jesus didn't actually have to go through Samaria. Now, it was the quickest way, but Jewish people traveling from Judea to Galilee diverted around Samaria all the time. That was like the status quo route. Whoop! This big old loop. Jesus, though, apparently had to go through Samaria. It's a big deal because the Jews and the Samaritans had a long-standing rivalry, right? They were not friends. They were, in fact, enemies. The animosity was built upon hundreds of years. We actually talked about it a little bit last week with the parable of what we now call the merciful Samaritan. So you can listen to that if you want to get more information about Samaritans. But before we traverse farther into the story, I think there's just something about the movements of Jesus as we're people who follow his ways to take into account. Like reflect for a moment, are we prone ourselves to take the long way around in order to avoid those who aren't like us or who we disagree with or who we have a beef with or who make us uncomfortable Are we prone to take the long way around instead of having to go through Samaria? Because we should be caught off guard by the fact that Jesus wanted to go through Samaria when to get to Galilee, you didn't have to. It reminds me of this uh, quote that Father Gregory Boyle says. He says, Jesus stands with the other, the outsider, the outcast, until they're welcomed in or until he is crucified, whichever comes first. And here's Jesus at the outset of his ministry standing there already, and we kind of know where he's going to end up. So here's how the story continues. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar. And, and Sychar is a village of about 300 to 1,000 people, so you can kind of get a mental image of it in your head, okay? And it's near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, so there's a whole history there as well, which we're not going to get into today. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired from the long walk that was many, many miles, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. Now, first of all, he was not expecting this woman to arrive at noontime, right? And now they're on the cusp of this whole provocative conversation. And Jesus is already, even by asking for water, intent, it seems, on breaking social barriers on a bunch of levels. So he asks for this drink of water. And here's what we see next. He was alone. Uh Uh-oh. He was alone because the disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans, which is an understatement, right? And she said to Jesus, after he asked for a drink, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? 
She's like, I am aware that there are boundaries here and you are not following them. And this woman, right in this moment, she already has strikes against her. She's Samaritan, she's a woman, she's alone. And it's probably unlikely that they were going to be sharing a drinking vessel anyway. Right? It's already kind of out there. But Jesus is deconstructing something in this moment. This whole encounter is Jesus tearing apart this idea of these years and years and years and years of separation of us versus them. And he's bringing somebody back into it. He's showing up again where we least expect him, this well at noontime with this Samaritan woman. And he replies to her, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water, which is such an audacious thing to say when you just ask somebody for a drink, right? And she names this reality that like, hey, this thing doesn't usually happen. And he's like, yeah, but if you only knew the gift God had for you, like imagine what that would have sparked in her. Imagine what it sparks in us. Like, I think we actually brush over that. Because sometimes in, in my own just pastoral life, if I could sit with someone and I could say to them, if you only knew the gift God has for you, if you only knew the gift God has for you, to be free, to be loved, to be known, to be renewed, to be accepted, to be forgiven, if you only knew the gift God has for you, and he says that to her, and she goes, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. Very practical, this woman, right? She said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? Well, how can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Right? She's just like, this is not possible. That's what she's saying. And Jesus says, anyone who drinks this water, and he probably points in the well, right, will soon be thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within in them, giving them eternal life. And every time I read that, I think of Jesus, with, if he was silly, he would be like, don't stay thirsty, my friends, right? Like he would flip that idea. He'd be like, I have something. You know, there's no need to be thirsty, like, I've got this for you, and it will come up inside of you in a way that you could never imagine, like a fresh bubbling spring. Jesus is the master at taking whatever's happening around him and creating these metaphors that invite you to experience the gift that he has for you, living water. And in this moment, now he's blurring the lines between the physical and the spiritual, because now what all started around a drink of water from this well He's now offering himself his living water in place of asking for his drink of water. How quick he flipped that. 14 verses in. Only took him 14 verses and all of a sudden he's offering himself as a drink. And she says, when he says that, the bubbling spring idea, she says, please, sir, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again. And I won't have to come here to get water. Notice how practical she is, how literal in this moment. We would be too, right? Like we have, we've got, we know what Jesus is up to on some level, right? But if you just showed up there and he starts talking like this and he's like, you could have water forever. You're like, yeah, that'd be great because it's noon and it's terrible coming to this well at noon by myself in the desert. 
And at this point, she's intrigued because she is in search of being free. She can sense it. There's something about to unleash this thing in her. But all she can think of is free from coming back to the freaking well in the middle of the day by herself. Because that's not when you go to the well. I, I mean, you all live in Phoenix. Do you go like walking around at noon in the summer? No. You do it in the early morning before the sun comes up, the coolest point of the day. But this woman is by herself in a village of about a thousand people tasked with going to the well in the middle of that day. Of course she's like, yeah, give me that water. I don't want to come back here. And there's something lurking beneath the surface of her life. And so after she exclaims for the water, yes, give me that water, Jesus shifts directions and he says, Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. And you're just like, what the heck, Jesus? I mean, this, this is hilarious to me because, like, the, you know, the key to comedy is where you say something that everybody wasn't expecting, right? Like they think you're going to say something and then you say the unexpected and everybody's like, whoa, this is like Jesus being a terrible comedian, right? He's like, you want that water? Go get your husband. And you're like, what? It doesn't, like, it doesn't make any sense, right? It doesn't. I mean, you're probably like, it doesn't make any sense. Does it make any sense to you yet? And you even might know where the story's headed, and you're like, stop for a minute, and you're like, this still doesn't make any sense. So then she says, I don't have a husband. You notice how she banters with him, too. Like, I love that about this story. There's not any part of Jesus trying to, like, shush that. This is just like, that's why it's the longest recorded conversation, right? They're just, they're just going at it. She goes, I don't have a husband. <laughs> and Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Now, what is Jesus up to? Because he's flipped the script, right? Her personal desire for water is turned into an intimate exchange in which Jesus reveals the challenges of her past. And you're like, okay. And it's this point of the teaching of this passage that often gets this woman labeled. And I am here today to address the misconceptions of lazy interpretations. All right, the woman at the well, she's often thought of the moment we hear that, She's often thought of as perhaps a prostitute, or at base level, she sleeps around. She's a whore. Many names have been tacked on to this woman's identity. In many of my own conversations, more often than not, when I would probe about this passage, she's remembered by her past, remembered as the woman who got around. And I think there's something going on here. We tend to label her as a way to disassociate ourselves from her experience. We want to compare ourselves to her. We don't want to relate to her. Like, we, we want to get as far away from her as we can and be like, man, she could have just got it together earlier. She wouldn't have had to go to the well at noon. Right? If she'd taken advantage of some of the resources that were available to her, this wouldn't have happened. 
right? But, but what if we saw her, and all people, I guess, too, right? As Jesus says, like, we just start seeing differently because there's something different that Jesus is seeing here. Because the thing is, culturally speaking, during this time, a woman could only request a divorce. She didn't have any power about moving from husband to husband. And to have had five husbands, especially in the first century, would probably imply that at least one of them died. Maybe more. I'm not sure if like four died, the fifth one would have been like, let's do this. You know, I've been like, I, I see a pattern here, right? Uh, but but the, the reality is that every time she was without a husband, she was widowed. And then she needed some way to be cared for again, because that's the structure of the society at that time. Maybe she had made a destructive decision or two. Maybe she had some role in all of this. But culturally speaking, she had no authority to do that. And so at the death or the ending of that fifth marriage, she finds herself in a place in which her survival in that culture is tied up in her relationship to a man who can provide something of the basic necessities to live. That's how she got there at least how I'd tell the narrative, right? Because it, there's nothing in there that tells us anything else, and those are the cultural components present. So regardless of her full story, which we never know, actually, the truth is she didn't want to share about the past husband's or current relationship. That's why she goes to the well in the middle of the day. She tried to avoid it like she avoided going for water with any other person at dawn. And that's why she showed up in the middle of the day. And so we tend to read a story like this and we go, yeah, but where's her sin? Like, is it the five marriages? Is it the sixth relationship? And Jesus is saying something like, you know what? There's obviously something separated and busted up going on here. If this woman's coming to get water in the middle of the day. And we're going to get to the source of that. But this is also how we can see that shame of whatever it is hiding in her. Because we're relating to her, right? We're not separating ourselves from her anymore. And the reality is we too tend to hide when we have stories like this. Stories of our own shame, bankruptcy, scandal, losing, rock bottom, unfulfilled potential, dead dreams. And because of this, because we know what it's like to hide when our stories tell those experiences of shame, we shouldn't be so quick to disassociate ourselves from this woman because we know the feeling, don't we? And we know what it's like to thirst for meaning and purpose and belonging. And we know what it's like to search in all the dead-end wrong places too. And we all have our own types of water we think will quench our longing thirst. So perhaps we're more like this woman than we think. And our perspective shifts. She no longer sleeps around. Now she's our sister. And this is how she responds to Jesus after he reveals her past. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, 
Why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? And I think this is hilarious, first of all, because she like gets theological now, right? Like Jesus like cuts straight to her heart. This is your story. And she's like, yeah, but who's right about where we worship? And I'm like, dang, I feel so convicted personally because I do this when I don't want to address the state of my own heart or my own shortcomings or my own shame. I just wax theological. Right? I'll, just, I'll just tell you a verse. You know, like, and then I'll caption it and it'll get likes and we'll share it and we'll be like, see, I'm fine out here. I'm fine. This woman, though, that first response is what I want to pay attention to, right? She's able to identify Jesus as a prophet. She's saying, this man is a messenger from God. I know there's something different going on, but now she wants to know where to worship. And Jesus plays along. He says, believe me, dear woman. The time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus is saying, I am the mountain. I'm right here, right now, in your presence. Worship here, now, with me. There's no proper place to meet with Jesus because Jesus is always with us. He's always offering himself as the mountain to worship upon. And you can receive the rescuing love of Jesus anywhere. For God is spirit, Jesus says. Trinity Jesus is turning everything upside down by saying, through him, the mountain of worship comes to you. For so long, the Jews and the Samaritans both had to go to a place to encounter God. And he said, look what's going on now. Indeed, a new thing is here right now. I'm coming to you. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Like, she's so close. She's so close. You can feel it, right? We we do the same thing, right? And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. The ultimate punchline, because that's who she, too, has been waiting for. And then I love verse 27. John's hilarious, by the way. I don't know how he's writing this stuff. Because Jesus gives this punchline in this encounter. I am the Messiah. And you can imagine, she's like, I get it. Verse 27 says, just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask. Now, apparently somebody had the nerve to ask later because now we've got the story. But none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? 
They know this is that type of subversive, unprecedented conversation that's unfolding, and they can tell it's a full-on engaged conversation. Verse 28, the woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? This woman who comes alone to the well at noontime doesn't even bring the water jar back and she sprints and tells everybody, come on out here. This guy knows me. So do you all. There's only like 500 of us here, right? Like, they know. She leaves her water jar and runs to the village. And every time I read that, I get this picture of the disciples leaving their fishing nets, right? And going on the way with Jesus, like leaving behind the thing that kept them in one place. And now they're on the move with Jesus. And I think it's a practical question to ask in the midst of a crazy story. What is our water jar? Like, what's the thing we keep carrying around with us that tells our story in some way that Jesus is going to actually meet us so profoundly, so intimately, so lovingly that we leave it behind and off we go? Like, how are you trying to fill your life? And whatever it is, an encounter with Jesus, an invitation to receive him, is that enough for you to set it down to tell a new story about yourself? She had a whole nother story she was telling about herself now. The past didn't change. The way she told the story changed. And so this woman runs and shouts to all her neighbors. But all she says is, like, listen to what she says, because it's nuts. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Which does not sound like the most compelling good news of all time, does it? Because, like, for one moment, we play a one dark secret that we don't tell anymore. Like, I don't, don't want to tell that to anybody. I don't want anybody to know that. Her entire message is founded on the fact that she is known by Jesus. And she can't keep that story to herself. And this led to verse 30. So the people came streaming from the village to see him. And I just want you to picture that. Because it makes the story come to life, right? Like the whole encounter at the well, we've got some image of that. It seems kind of drawn out. We're like, all right, get to the point of all that, right? And then she drops her water jar the moment the disciples return. She runs into her village, which I don't know how far that was. And they all come streaming out of the village to the well in the middle of the day. Like they, there's something in the way. She meets them. Meanwhile, she leaves, and the disciples are now there with Jesus, right? And they're urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. Oh, man, they just sometimes don't have a clue, do they? And Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. And then they ask each other, did someone bring him food while we were gone? <laughs> Told you John's funny. Then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me. Jesus forgoes his physical need, his hunger and thirst, to meet this spiritual need that he didn't even know he was going to meet in that moment. Like, there's something to that, right? Jesus never in this whole story ever drinks or eats anything. There's no account of him eating or drinking anything, which is like the whole way this started. 
to be so focused on the needs of the other, to be so focused on engaging the story, to be focused on loving someone you've never met and your own personal hunger and thirst vanishes for the moment. And while I think this entire encounter is pretty amazing, like the next part really will blow you away. We're almost done. Verse 39. It's a long story. Hey. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So we stayed for two days. He stayed in the Samaritan village for two more days. Again, unprecedented, right? It was long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, after these days, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. I love that the voice translates it like this. Meanwhile, because one woman shared with her neighbors how Jesus exposed her past and present, the village of Sychar was transformed. Many Samaritans heard and believed. They began their faith journey because of the testimony of the woman beside the well. Two, two things right here to, I think, wrap us up. Like your story matters. Our stories matter. So if that's just a base thing, like Jesus wants to know your story, he wants to hear your story, they matter. Now you might have to figure out how to share it or if you're gonna share it, but it seems like there's an invitation to share it, to give some credit to how Jesus met you in your telling of your story. And then you get to tell it again. And then the second thing is this reminder that sometimes we tend to live our life off of other people's experiences. Right, what happened for them, they, they were intrigued by her experience, but when they came and met Jesus for themselves, that's when they were transformed too. And sometimes I think we're prone to use the stories of the people around us our spouses, our significant other, our parents, our friends, a celebrity's story, to take the place of meeting Jesus for ourselves. And, and I think it's worth naming, though, that the experiences of our past can be debilitating. That's just true. And that might require all kinds of different work, right? Go, you mind, go, go see a therapist. Go, go gather a group of friends. Like, there's a, there's a lot of realities to that, okay? But also, I think we have a tendency, like we label this woman for her past, to be people of the past, and to just let whatever happened in our past be the, the story that we tell or live from instead of the one that encounters Jesus and helps us rewrite it and relive it and become something else. So what she becomes, in fact especially in John's gospel, is the first evangelist. Her new identity is the one who actually tells an entire village about Jesus and they're all transformed. Imagine what that village was like after that. That place would have been nuts. Most of them, it says, were transformed by Jesus. I don't even know what that means, but they were probably acting like her. And here's the thing I got. This is what I think I want us to hear, right? That Jesus says the same thing to us today. That he's meeting all of us at the well. 
He says, I have a water that quenches the thirsting of your soul. Your story matters to me. He says, I want you to be free if you only knew the gift God had for you. Like, think about it. Why is her story enough to lead these people to meet with Jesus? Because it's a genuine encounter. Like, that was undeniable to them. There was something in the way she spoke. There was something in the way she invited the people that drew them to the presence of Jesus. It wasn't her sound theology. It wasn't her history of making moral decisions or some sudden surge of charisma. It was the way she shared a genuine encounter with the Jesus who knew everything about her and loved her as she was. It wasn't anything but sharing the beauty and newness of meeting this Jesus who loves us. Like imagine if that's how we viewed ourselves, known by this Jesus, still loved by this Jesus, as you are right now. Imagine how we might live if that was true of us, who we might encounter and how we might encounter them and what we might offer to them. It's amazing to me that her story matters less to her than Jesus does by the time she's telling everyone. It's not the story she wanted to announce, but it doesn't matter anymore. She originally avoids inviting people into her story. That's why she goes by herself to the well at noontime. And yet here she is after an encounter with Jesus adding all of these characters to her story. We see a village transformed by Jesus. Is this not actually what we thirst for more than anything else? A God who knows us and loves us. A God who transforms entire communities. I think sometimes we think we want a God who fixes everything or makes everything right or sorts everything out. But really, I think at the core of who we are, we're searching for a God who is simply the God who fully and completely knows us and loves us just the same. And then we'll figure out all that other junk with the God who is with us. And I guess that's the whole point, right? A lot of talking to get to the whole point I know. It's not that Jesus wants to use her. Apparently other people have done that. It's just that Jesus simply loves her. He doesn't even say, this whole thing needs to go down so you tell other people. None of that is on the line. Jesus just loves her as she is in the moment and she can't help but run into the village. Jesus didn't love her so that she would tell the village about him. That's not how Jesus works. Jesus loves you as you are. And if we receive such love, which is the life's work, it might in fact propel us into the villages where we live. And so it is, to name it one more time with you and I, we are loved by Jesus. So known we don't need to keep that to ourselves because collectively we have stories to tell. So what I want to do, band, as you guys come 
up. I want, I want you to have your encounter with Jesus. And we'll do our best to not manipulate that or force that. But if you would, would you just find a posture of prayer? Maybe, maybe close your eyes. Maybe sit up straight and be expectant that Jesus might be there in front of you. Maybe lean forward in anticipation. And I just want you to imagine yourself at whatever well you pick, wherever you'd want to meet Jesus. Imagine that place first. Pick a place you're going to meet Jesus. If you could meet him anywhere, where would it be? Settle in there. And then envision him before you. All love looking at you. And just begin to receive it. Jesus knows you. And that's okay. As Jesus sits there and looks at you. Hear him say. I know everything about you, and I love you all the same. And then just be. We don't need to envision the village we're going to run to just yet. Just receive the love. Ask him to help you receive the love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are here now in your presence. So grateful that you are a God who loves us, embodied in the story of Jesus meeting this woman who's now our sister, who shows us what a genuine encounter with you can do in our lives and in the lives of a community. And so with expectant hearts, anticipating spirits, we say, meet us, Jesus. Love us, Jesus. Have your way with us, Jesus. For we are your children. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.